Father God, we thank you and praise you for gathering us today. And uh, with this opportunity that we're able to learn, further learn the truth uh, of your teaching uh, through the, the scripture that has passed on through generations to millennials. And uh, so many things happens, you know, as usual, but and many evils has uh, revealed themselves. And in spite of the darkness, as uh, believers, given the truth and grace, and we know that uh, you are ultimately in control. And with the spirit, the gift you have given us, uh, we are comforted in this dark time, so we don't need to despair. And we know that you're always with us. And Father, we thank you for bringing uh, other believers into the nest. There are many, many requests you know, within us, and many unspoken, and, but you know our hearts. And may the comfort of the spirit to uh, remove the anxiety uh, from us. So we may be better focused on appreciating and the gift you have given us. We know that you always supply with us like the word Paul has penned down in his writing, the supply and epicorrigia, uh, it's everything you have supplied to us is through the course and from many different angles, different components, yeah, eventually create a beautiful harmony and to enable uh, believers to fully rejoice and to receive your blessings. And we also pray for the, the strength and comfort of those, not just uh, Canadian truckers, but also people has risen up from all around the world. And we pray that uh, there will be believers, renters, who are in the midst of those countries, those protests, and may the light shine from them through the words, their words and their comfort. And we pray that as a result, many will be drawn to you and uh, to believe in uh, the gospel of grace. And Father, this is a dark time indeed. And again, your grace is always sufficient for us. And uh, the light of your truth, uh, may they be uh, spread out and radiate uh, toward those people who uh, are chosen to listen. And we thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, Jesus name we pray. Amen. Thank you very much, Louis. I really appreciate your opening in prayer this morning. And uh, it's a privilege, as I've said so often here this morning, for all of you. You're probably sorry 
I keep saying it or wish I had gone to other subjects, but it is such a privilege for me to open the word uh, with all of you who are so serious as students of the scriptures and uh, those that have believed and cherish the precious grace of the living God through our Lord Jesus, who is a savior beyond all, the only one, the only mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, and that he's been raised from the dead, a living and powerful spirit able to work in the hearts. Where previously there was only sin and now life eternal. So we continue our studies today looking back in Genesis, uh, theme by theme, where we see the foundations of our faith revealed. And uh, all of you that were here earlier have been taken step by step through that. I I know we spent a lot of time on the first theme revealed in Genesis, and that is the theme of uh, of inspiration, that Genesis is inspired by the living God and uh, was given, therefore, to the saints for their salvation and edification. And so we went through that very carefully. The first theme in Genesis being its inspiration. The second theme, the sovereignty of God. And we've seen how the sovereignty of God is revealed in every chapter of Genesis. And in fact, more than that, nearly every verse of Genesis in one way or another reveals the sovereignty of Almighty God. Uh, not over only over the entire creation, though certainly that's revealed in many places, but also in the uh, deliverance of God's chosen people. So today we continue that. We're on part four now of the sovereignty of God as that's revealed in Genesis. Last time we looked at the gift the gift that had been promised to Abram and Sarai, the gift of a son, Isaac. And we saw how that gift of a son promise was uh, in many ways interfered with by the evil one and through his children <laughs> who uh, were contrary to Abram and Sarai on every side, right? And we saw that even Abram and Sarai themselves I'm using their names, original names, Abram and Sarai, before their names were changed to Abraham and Sarah by adding that Hebrew letter there that changed the meaning. Once uh, the promise of the son was near, their names were changed, right? To indicate that they would be the parents of a great many, a great family, in fact, uh, uh, a great throng of witnesses, ultimately, right? As the plan of God is brought to uh, its completion, finally, in the millennial kingdom. So we saw how there were many challenges and uh, how Abram and Sarai conspired together in unbelief, really in rebellion against the word of God by 
bringing into the picture an Egyptian woman who was Sarai's handmaid named Hagar. And uh, she and Abram brought forth a son named Ishmael. And what we saw was that uh, that was a great challenge indeed. And the challenge continued on and on and on. And we'll see even more of that today. Uh, we then saw how, in addition to the gift of a son being challenged by sin and rebellion, we saw how finally God provided that gift of a son in due time. In fact, 25 years after the promise was originally given, <laughs> was Isaac born, right? So in due time, God's due time, in other words, God's sovereignly appointed time, he kept the promise of giving forth the son of the promise, Isaac. And there was only one son of the promise. And that was made clear, right? Then we saw how that gift of a son was preserved by Almighty God and his sovereign activity, right? Uh, and how the great sacrifice of Isaac was Abraham's great test, right? It was the greatest test of obedience to be found anywhere in Abraham's life, right? Offering up the son of the promise as he had been commanded. And yet, again, God sovereignly act to deliver that son so that that son did not suffer the consequence expected, right? God provided himself a lamb, to be offered, right? And Abram, Abraham offered up that lamb instead of his son. But what we learned, and this is the only part of the review here today that I want to spend any time at all on, uh, what we learned is that by going to the letter to the Hebrews, Paul explains <laughs> what was really going on there, and uh, it would not be possible to know apart from Paul's Revelation, which clearly the risen and ascended Christ had given to him to be explained to God's children. So uh, what we read there in Hebrews 11, and that's in verses 17 through 19. Remember, Hebrews 11 gives us the list of the great works of obedience, but they're not works of obedience alone. This is not a list of those that obeyed the commandments. It's not that's that way at all. This is a list of those that, by the obedience of faith, walked in the path that God had chosen. It was the obedience of faith. And that's why in every case it says, by faith. And in this case, Hebrews eleven seventeen, by faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Now those are very interesting words, are they not? Because it's in the past tense. For one thing, 
It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. It does not say he took him to the prescribed place to offer him. And, of course, as we well know, he did not offer him on the altar that had been provided, right? He bound him. He placed him on the altar that had the wood arranged. He had the the uh, the knife in his hand. He was ready and willing to offer up his son as had been commanded by the Lord God. Right? And it really was true. God had commanded Abraham to do just that, right? To sacrifice the son of promise. Seems impossible to us that that could be true. But what we had going on there, according to Paul here in Hebrews 11, was a great work of faith. And so what we saw is that uh, Abraham, when he was commanded by the Lord God to take his son Isaac to that place that God had commanded to offer him up, that in Abraham's heart, Isaac was already offered up. In other words, by faith, he took his son, therefore, as dead. It was counted as such by Abraham in faith, believing, right? Um, and uh, for three days, and it was a three days journey from there to Mount Moriah. A three days journey. So for three days, Isaac was dead. He'd been sacrificed by his father, Abraham, right? But then, according to Hebrews 11, 19, <laughs> what Abram was believing was that God was able also to raise him up, even from the dead. And it says, from whence also he received him in a figure. So, really, what was happening there is that this whole thing was a type. Isaac was a type, ultimately, of Israel's coming Messiah and our Savior, the Lord Jesus, Right. And uh, Abraham, by faith, considered that he had offered up Isaac even when the Lord God issued the command, and from that time on for three days. And so when God provided himself a lamb there on Mount Moriah, right, uh, Isaac was then raised from the dead in Abram's heart, okay? That's because it was a work of faith. It was a work of faith. And so seeing that, we now can understand why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, when he gives the gospel there, and he says, uh, for Christ uh, uh, died for our sins, right? According to the scriptures, and he was buried and on the third day raised from the dead, according to the scriptures. And what were those scriptures? Well, we know about Jonah, because our Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry mentioned him, right? Jonah. And now we also uh, have another reference that happens to be in Genesis, <laughs> where uh, Christ uh, was dead in Abram's mind and heart, because by faith he took God at his word, that God would raise him up from the dead on the third day. So Abram's faith was a 
resurrection faith. That's absolutely critical to understand. Abraham's faith was a resurrection faith, and it was proved that day by him offering up Isaac and for three days afterwards. Okay, so that's uh, really, uh, I think, probably the most important thing we shared last time, that faith needs to be a resurrection faith. If it is not, it is not enough, right? It is not enough. Um, And that applies to us today, of course, equally well. Okay, so now we come to uh, a subject which we looked at and touched on last time, but today I'd like to fill in the details of that. And that's that God blesses his people through great trials and tribulations. He does not prevent them from going through those trials and those tribulations. In fact, uh, as we know from the Apostle Paul in Philippians, he writes, All that would live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, right? And we see in the Apostle Paul's life so many examples of that. And and in fact, uh, when when, uh, Paul cries out to the Lord for deliverance on that most interesting occasion of all, right? Um, The Lord says, uh, my grace will be sufficient for you. So Paul was not delivered from the thorn in the flesh. But he was enabled to live with that thorn in the flesh and to understand that through that, the very sufferings of Christ in his body, the body of Christ, were being exemplified there in Paul, a member of the body of Christ. So, praise God. Uh, It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to see how God works through trials and through tribulations, right? With great blessing. And that is the message set before us today, how the Lord God with Isaac, the son of the promise, and Abraham, his father, learn to live in troubled times with enemies on every side. And yet even their own sinfulness, even their own rebellion cannot stand in the way of God sovereignly working to fulfill his perfect will in and through them. That's the lesson for today. Our outline's simple enough. God sovereignly blesses Isaac, the son of promise, through sand, stars, and many wells, even wells of living water. First, we'll consider the sand and the stars aspect of this. Remember the promise given to Abraham uh, regarding his offspring someday through the son of promise that it would be as the sand and the stars in number so that no one could count them. Then we'll see how Hagar and Ishmael are right in the center of things. We looked at this last time, but I'm including it again today because it's so important. The well, the well of living water that saved Hagar and Ishmael in the desert brought great blessing, though there was a great trial involved in the process. And that well was named Bir Laharoi, you remember, and we'll look at that again here today. 
And then the second well of Hagar and Ishmael, named Beersheba, signifies the blessings of God multiplied beyond measure, multiplied beyond measure. So the wells take the center stage. First of all, though, let's consider the sand and the stars. So uh, I'd like... uh, that to be uh, read for us, that section there, uh, how God had promised to bring a great family forth out of the loins of uh, Abram and uh, through Abram and Sarah in due time. Linda, would you read for us that? Genesis 22, verses 15 through 18, where we see the promise again repeated. And the angel of the Lord called on to Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thy only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. Uh, Thank you. Thank you so much, Linda. So again, God makes the promise. He reminds Abraham. The promise had already been given. He remember, he said, look at this sky, look at the seashore, consider it, right? So shall thy seed be, right? Remember? And uh, he reminds Abram of that because he may have forgotten because actually that particular promise had been given to Abram while he was in a deep sleep, right? Did he remember that later uh, after he awakened? Uh, I think he may have, but it doesn't say so directly in Scripture, right? But here it's made very, very clear to Abram. And there are some additional details given, this uh, mention here of the nations of the earth, the nations being blessed, uh, and possessing the gate of their enemies. Okay, so there's some additional details given here in this reminder to Abraham concerning how he would work, how God would work uh, in due time, right? Now, remember, let's, and let's get the context of this straight. Remember, God had called Abram out of the Ur of the Chaldees years before, right? He called him to leave everything and to go wherever the Lord God would lead him. And he said he would give him this land. But the land was owned by others and was occupied by others, right? And they were not going to so easily give up the land and there would be conflict, no doubt, right? and much uh, trial and tribulation for God's chosen ones. But one step at a time, God showed him the land, and he then dwelt as a sojourner, as a stranger, as an alien in that land, which he didn't own, but which he would someday uh, take uh, ownership of and his children, right? And so it was one step at a time. Uh, All they could do in the meantime was to occupy 
wherever the Lord sent them. And they were privileged, of course, to walk and to live by faith, considering that uh, God's promise was near and dear to their hearts. Now, the land that was given to them, at least uh, by promise, was a dry and barren land and quite mountainous, though it did include other areas that were flowing, as it were, with milk and honey, as we learned from the book of Deuteronomy later, right? But in this section of the divinely given history concerning Abram and Sarah, they go forth uh, and uh, they inhabit the dry, barren, and mountainous land that God first leads them into. And so the issue will be survival. Will God preserve them? Well, of course, it all goes with the, the plan, right? But for Abram and Sarah, Sarai, they are caught in challenges every day, every hour, right? Just to live and to prosper in such a barren place. Without water, there was no way. Okay. Uh, and so how would it go? Well, that brings us to see that if God's made a promise like this, that there would be this great offspring, he will have to uh, not only bring forth the son of the promise, but he'll have to bless on every side or there'll be no way they can survive in the desert land. Okay. A land that's already owned by others. And so we get to chapter 21 and see how God blesses greatly through, even through and in spite of sin and rebellion. Okay, so Abram has the great promise. He's waited for years now. Sarai's waited for years. There's still no son who's been brought forth. And so in uh, disobedience to the Lord God, Sarai and Abram uh, take the matter into their own hands quite directly and um, produce a son through an Egyptian handmaid of Sarai's named Hagar. But when God finally brings forth Isaac, then we have two sons, Ishmael, the son of the Egyptian handmaid, uh, and Isaac, the son of the promise. How can these two coexist there in one family, in one place, in one area of this promised land? They cannot. Okay. And Sarah finally understands this well, and that's where I'll read to you now from Genesis 21. Uh, verse 9, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which she had born unto Abraham, mocking. So Isaac has been born. And now. Hagar is mocking Sarah. And then verse 10, wherefore, she said unto Abraham, this is Sarah saying to Abraham, her husband, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. And so Abraham says, fine, go ahead and cast her out, right? And they go forth and uh, 
there's a great trial indeed for them because it's a desert land. How can you survive, survive without water, right? Well, earlier, remember, Hagar had actually run away um, with her, her son uh, and uh, had been sustained in the desert because God provided a well. You remember that? Um, this is in Genesis 16. So, Elizabeth, I'd like you to read that for us to remind us of what we saw last time there. Genesis 16, verses 10 through 14. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, Thou art with child, and shall bear a son, and shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. And he will be a wild man. His hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all of his brethren. And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. For she said, have I also here looked after him that seeth me? And wherefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. So earlier, when a son was only in her heart and conceived, but not yet born, um, Hagar, for fear, runs off into the wilderness where there is no water. And uh, behold, there was a well found. A well was found, and she therefore was able to drink and survive. The Lord sovereignly provided for her deliverance, right? That's important for the whole story. In fact, we'll see how important because she and the Lord have a little conversation <laughs> together. And in fact, um, she survives this. For as she says, thou God seest me, have I also here looked after him that seeth me. In other words, the Lord God saw her and she saw him as well and survived. She did not die. Well, that's an incredible miracle. And she knew it. So her faith was indeed, uh, from that point on, a resurrection kind of faith as well, because she was dead, <laughs> having seen God, as it were, and now still alive. And so the name of the well is the well of the one that sees, is seen and still lives. Okay? the well of the one who is seen and still lives. This will go down in history. This well become a very famous place indeed, as we'll soon see this morning. 
Okay. So God then later, when Isaac, when Ishmael is born, uh, uh, at that point, God again say, saves Hagar and Ishmael because Sarah exiles her and her son, right, out into the wilderness again in a different place in the wilderness, and there is no water, and they run out of the water they have, and uh, so what happens? God saves them again through a well, okay? And we'll get to that uh, in a moment. But before we go there, I'd like you to see how important this first well is in the life of this family in an ongoing way. And uh, it's just most remarkable. So in order to see that, uh, I'd like us to uh, look in, into uh, Genesis 24. Genesis 24. You remember that uh, when Ishmael takes a wife um, of an Egyptian, Ishmael's mother, Sarah, is very troubled, right? And she determines that her son Isaac will not do the same. And so she sends Abraham, sends uh, his servant off to the land of his origin, not quite, but over to where the rest of his family still lives, which is on the edge of the promised land, right? And, uh, and so he sends his servant there to find a wife for Isaac. And I'm not going to tell you that story. You know it well, right? How his servant goes there and and uh, in his heart desires uh, that the woman of God's choice will be identified. Uh, miraculously, really. <laughs> and she is <laughs> identified miraculously. And uh, uh, with the approval, of course, of her father and mother, uh, Rebecca comes forth. Uh, to meet Isaac in uh, short order. It doesn't take long at all, 10 days, and they leave home and away they go, right? And I'm just going to read you one verse or two from Genesis 24, verses 60, I'll read you three, 63, 62. And they blessed Rebekah and said unto her, Thou art our sister. Be, that, be thou the mother of thousands of millions, and let thy seed possess the gate of those which hate them. You see that there's been some communication here about the heritage expected through the offspring of Rebekah and Isaac, right? Then verse 61, And Rebekah arose and her damsels, and they rode upon the camels and followed the man. And the servant took Rebekah and went his way. And Isaac came from the way of the well, Laharoi, for he dwelt in the south country. Who's living at the well, Laharoi? 
Isaac. Now that's quite remarkable. I think it's just a wonderful thing to see that through the sin of Abram and Sarai, God has sovereignly worked. Through this woman, Hagar, this Egyptian, and her son, Ishmael, <clears throat> because of how God worked to save their lives, and he needed to do that because the promise of many children actually also applied to Ishmael, and 12 tribes came out of him, so he had to survive, right? It was survived by the provision of the well, Laharoi, right? Uh, and later, it's not Ishmael and his family that dwell there. They've gone off into the most arid part of the land, and probably the Sinai Peninsula, and the Arab families of today are derived from them, from Ishmael. But the one who dwells there is Isaac. Isaac dwells at the well. And why, you might ask, and I would say, because Isaac's faith was a resurrection faith, and that's what the well symbolized, the resurrection faith. God brought life out of death, right? And so Isaac knew this well, after all, he had been offered up, remember? <laughs> and so Isaac becomes a shepherd, and uh, farmer and dwells uh, at the well, La Haroi, and that's where he receives Rebecca near there. And she descends off of the camel and goes to her new husband. Isn't that a precious and wonderful story? Many applications, I think, for today. We live in troubled times and there are many trials and tribulations that come our way, right? Many disappointments. And yet God, through resurrection faith, always delivers us, gives us a hope that's enduring and eternal and most precious, right? But that's not the end of the story, because what I want you to see now <clears throat> regards Isaac later on. Okay, so... <clears throat> Back when <clears throat> in the history here, back when uh, Hagar and Ishmael are driven off into the wilderness. Now, not the earlier time when Hagar went there, right? When Ishmael wasn't yet born, okay? But later, when they go there, they're delivered by God providing a well. You remember that I mentioned that, okay? But what we read in Genesis 21 is very, very interesting. So, Lydia, would you um, please read to us from Genesis 21 and verses 11 through 14. And the thing that was very grievous in, in Abraham's sight became of his son. And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad, and because of thy bondwoman, and all that Sarah hath said unto thee. He heareth unto her voice, for in Isaac shall I see be called. And also of the son of the bondwoman will I make a nation, because he is thy seed. 
And Abraham rose up early in the morning and took bread and a bottle of water and gave it unto Hagar, putting it on her shoulder and the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Okay, thank you. So the reason I went to those verses is that it specifically mentions the area by name, okay? The wilderness of Beersheba. Okay, well, this turns out to be a place. Beer means um, well, Sheba means oath, okay? So the well of the oath. This is the wilderness around the well of the oath where she's wandering, but she does not know of the well that will save her and her son, right? And so she's sure she's going to die as well as uh, Ishmael. Puts Ishmael aside, we'll read next, because she's sure that death is nearby. Okay, so Tom, would you please read these wonderful verses for us? Chapter 21, verses 15 through 21. Chapter 21, 15 through 21. And the water was spent in the bottle, and she cast the child under one of the shrubs. And she went and sat her down over against him a good way off, as it were a bow shot. For she said, let me not see the death of the child. And she sat over against him and lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad. And the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not, for God hath heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad and hold him in thine hand, for I will make him a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the bottle with water, and gave the lad drink. And God was with the lad, and he grew, and dwelt in the wilderness, and became an archer. And he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took him a wife out of the land of Egypt. Thank you, Tom. So how does God deliver Hagar and Ishmael? A well of water, right? A well of water, which is called then Beer Sheba, the well of the oath. Turns out these names were given later. Moses wrote them down. Uh, much later, hundreds of years later, when they were well known to everyone, right? But they were named this way because of uh, what had occurred there. So this well, it turns out, and I don't want to take the time to read it now, back in uh, chapter 21, but Abram had had a conflict with uh, King Abimelech. He was the Philistine king. And they'd ultimately 
the conflict was over wells <laughs> that Abraham had dug, that Abraham had dug in this area, okay? One of which was this one particular well. They'd had a conflict over it in Abimelech, and Abraham finally made a covenant together. And Abimelech said, okay, this land and this well is yours, okay? It is yours. We just cut a covenant to that effect. And so that turns out to be the very well that God then directs Hagar and Ishmael to in due time, you see. And so that then become, becomes the, the foundation really for uh, much that will occur afterwards. So we not only have the well Laharoi, which was central, but now we have the well Beersheba. Sheba, the well of the covenant, okay? This one becomes far more important than the other over time. And uh, what I'd like you to realize, and you can look in the notes, and I'll put them online here later today, but there are so many things that then focus in on Beer Sheba. It turns out that uh, not only would Isaac dwell there as well from time to time, but also Jacob and his family stopped there when the Lord renewed a promise to him as they were uh, on their way to Egypt, carrying all that they had. Remember, Joseph had become known to his uh, brethren, right? And they'd sent off for his father, uh, Jacob and, uh, of course, uh, Benjamin, right? The remaining favorite son, right? Um, and uh, and they come forth with all their belonging, belongings. And where do they stop? But in Beersheba on the way to Egypt. Uh, this eventually becomes part of the inheritance of Judah and then of, in, of Simeon. Okay, and that goes on. We can read about it in Joshua 15 and Joshua 19. It becomes a very important place for Elijah because Elijah stops in Beersheba on his way to Mount Sinai as he's running from Jezebel, who seeks his life, right? And there in Beersheba, the angel of the Lord comforts Elijah. And it goes on and on. Uh, but in the reign of Josiah, the king, it becomes an idolatrous land, and sad to say. But what I'd like us to see as we close today is how incredibly important Beersheba becomes for Isaac. It's an amazing thing, really. And I'd like, Rex, if you'd read for us, please, these, this introductory set of verses here, verses 1 through 5 in Genesis 26. Chapter 26, 1 through 5. And there was a famine in the land beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went in unto Abimelech, the, the, uh, the king of Philistines, unto Gearm. And the Lord appeared unto him and said, Go not down into Egypt. Dwell in the land which I uh, shall tell thee of. Sojourn in the land, and I will be with thee, and will bless thee, 
For unto thee and unto their seed I will give thee all the countries, and I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham thy father. And I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, and will give unto thee, or to thy seed, all these countries, and thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Mm, wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much, Rex. And let's just continue to look here quickly as we close today, because Abraham goes down in history as a great man of faith. He's the man of the promise, and he's the man of the covenant, right? And he's the man of faith who worships the Lord God dwelling as a sojourner in the land of promise. Uh, Abram uh, is a great patriarch indeed. But what about Isaac? How would Isaac be described? How would you describe Isaac? I'll tell you how I would describe him based upon my studies here in Genesis. And I think you will agree after we look at uh, this this chapter, <laughs> 26, most amazing. Isaac is the digger of wells. Seems strange, but it's true. Isaac is distinguished amongst the patriarchs as the digger of wells. Seven times in one chapter, it mentions him and his servants digging wells. And where do they dig them? In the land of Beersheba. Okay. So it turns out Beersheba is on the top of an incredible underground aquifer. It's a desert landscape covered by mountains and desert. The rivers that are there are dry rivers. They rarely flow with water. But underneath is an amazing aquifer. And so here we learn in chapter 26 uh, the rest of the story, okay? Genesis 26, verse 12. Then Isaac sowed in that land, that's this land of Beersheba, and rece received in the same year a hundredfold. A hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. And the man waxed great and went forward and grew until he became very great. And he had possession of flocks and possession of herds and a great store of servants. And the Philistines envied him. Why did they envy him? For all the wells which his father's servants had digged in the days of Abraham, his father, which then the Philistines had stopped them up and filled them with earth, right? Okay, so Abraham had been a digger of wells too, but the Philistines had filled in all the wells so that Isaac wouldn't have them, right? Okay, and then we go down a little further, verse 18. And Isaac digged again the wells of water, which they had digged in the days of Abram, his father, for the Philistines had stopped them after the death of Abraham. And he called their names after the names by which his father had called them. And 19. And Isaac's servants digged in the valley and found there a well of springing water. 
and so forth. And then verse 21, and they digged another well and strove for that also. And he called the name of it Sitna in verse 22. And he removed from thence and digged another well. And for that they strove not and called it Rehoboth. And he said, for now the Lord hath made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. And then verse 23, and he went up thence to Beersheba. So Beersheba is the center point, and then all around there you have all the other wells being dug, right, and that are fruitful. And this is to support a great family, indeed, the family of Isaac, okay? And what does it say? The concluding verses. And the Lord, verse 24, the Lord appeared unto him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham thy father. Fear not, for I am with thee and will bless thee and multiply thy seed for my servant Abraham's sake. And he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there, Isaac's servants digged a well, another well, right? And then the end of the section, verse 32, it came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him of the well which they had digged and said unto him, we have found water. And he called it Sheba, and therefore the name of the city is Beersheba unto this day. So they'd made a covenant with the king of the Philistines. That covenant had been broken many times by the king's servants who wouldn't respect it. They wanted the water for themselves and the land for themselves because if you had the water, you owned the land. That's what it came down to. Desert with no water is of no value to shepherds, right? And so they agreed again, reinitiated the covenant, and finally it stood, and another well was dug, and all of these together now are called Beersheba until, he says, the current day, meaning when Moses wrote 400 years later. Okay, so Isaac was primarily a shepherd. Abraham was a well digger, yes, but he lived as a dweller in the land of promise. He worshipped. He fellowshiped even with angels, even with the pre-incarnate Son of God. Isaac was a digger of wells, and his life was lived at the wells of living water that the Lord made available. Interestingly, Beersheba today, today, nearly 4,000 years later, is a city of half a million people in the desert. They found a lot of water under there, didn't they? Right? Half a million, and in addition, Beersheba is 
the World Center for Research in Computer and Network Security. The World Center recognized around the world is in Beersheba. I guess God has quite a plan for the tribulation period <laughs> here. <laughs> well, praise God. Uh, wells of living water is how God preserved his people. His great sovereign work ordained that the promises would be kept. Even though sin dwelt on every side in rebellion, right? Even in God's own people. And yet he could not prevent the purpose and will of God from being accomplished. Is God's sovereignty revealed in Genesis? It surely is. Next time, Lord willing, we learn about Jacob, who's not a digger of wells. He was a builder of altars to the living God. Praise God. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us today. And indeed, the springs of living water have come forth uh, abundantly uh, through your word of truth, the gospel, the precious good news of the grace of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you, Father, for uh, delivering him up for our sins and for the sins of, uh, of all and for uh, raising him gloriously from the dead for our justification, as Paul writes preciously there in Romans 4. So, Father, thank you again that we can rest and that we have peace, uh, whatever our circumstances. And I'm sure that um, we we will remember, and if we don't, I pray that you would remind us, Heavenly Father, of Abraham. Yes, he often did have fears, and Isaac too, but you did bless them as well with peace and joy. And uh, especially as they saw how your hand of sovereignty would work in their lives to fulfill the great promises that you had made. So, Father, we thank you that nearly 40 centuries later, your promises are still being kept today in the church, the body, and how wonderful it is to be a member. Father, thank you for encouraging us from your word. I pray that it would be a constant blessing to us throughout the day and the week as we wait on you and uh, enjoy your work in our midst. And we thank you in Christ's name and amen. Amen.